1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This weekend marks a quarter century since the start of a mass slaughter in Rwanda. Ethnic tensions set neighbors, spouses, even children against one another. Our correspondent returned to the country to see how it's moved on from the atrocity. And it's clear that drinking to excess is bad for your health. But a big study out yesterday shot down the idea that a daily drink or two helps ward off heart problems and stroke. Even moderate drinking comes with heightened risks. So how to achieve that carefree feeling without the dangers? A prominent scientist is on the case. First up, though. After failing to find enough support from within her own Conservative Party for her Brexit deal, Theresa May has looked elsewhere. She's turned to an unlikely source for support, the radical leftist leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn. For months, the pair have harangued each
2: other in Parliament. So doesn't that tell us that the Prime Minister has been recklessly wasting time?
3: He opposes any deal that the government has negotiated with the European Union.
1: But for the past two days, they've been in talks together trying to come to an agreement ahead of a deadline of April 12th. Mrs. May's move was met with fury by hardline Brexiteers in her own party, some of whom have resigned. Today, she requested a further deadline extension until June 30th. It's being reported that the European Council may consider an extension as long as a year, with the right for the UK to leave sooner if an agreement is finalized beforehand. Brexiteers fear the UK will remain trapped within the EU indefinitely or be forced to have a second referendum. So will Mrs May's unlikely partnership with Mr Corbyn enable her at last to get a Brexit deal through? And who is the man she's negotiating with?
0: Theresa May has turned to Jeremy Corbyn out of desperation because a significant number of her own backbenchers in the Conservative Party uh, ran the bend. Adrian Waldridge writes Badgett, our column about British politics. What she's done is quite extraordinary. This is a woman who is purely a creature of the Conservative Party. And Jeremy Corbyn is, of course, the most left-wing leader that the Labour Party has ever had. Yet her own party has proved so intransigent on the issue of Brexit that she's had no choice but to reach across the aisle and go with Jeremy Corbyn. He is more sensible and sane and centrist than about 30 members of her own backbenches.
1: Is he sensible and sane and centrist?
0: No, he's not. He is the most left-wing leader the Labour Party has ever had. I'd like to say that he's a Marxist, but that's not quite true because to be a Marxist, you have to read the works of Karl Marx and understand the world's works of Karl Marx. He's not done that. He's not an intellectual. He's not somebody who reads or thinks conceptually, but all of his instincts are on the far left. He's somebody who would be a Marxist if he had more intellect.
1: So you, you hesitate to call him a Marxist, but you're at least calling him
0: extremely
1: left-leaning. Yes. I mean, what, what are his politics? How, how left-wing is he?
0: Well, his politics are, uh, are those of the Islington left. He's a man who's obsessed with the evils of Western imperialism and American imperialism. His parents were both of the left, vaguely pro-Soviet. And he was brought up essentially thinking capitalism was bad, central planning, and the left in general was good – then he drifted into London in the 1970s and he hung out really on the left-wing fringes of Islington society. And by hanging out in those left-wing circles, he became eventually connected with the Labour Party, although the left of the Labour Party, and became an Islington MP. And when the Labour Party was in power, when Tony Blair took the Labour Party to you know, smashing electoral victories, he was a thorn in his side and consistently supported more government spending, more state action. These looked like lost causes. Then something happened which changed the whole dynamics of British politics and that was the Iraq war. And the Iraq war was enormously unpopular uh, and so having been an eccentric figure protesting with groups of 10, 15 people, he suddenly became a person who was protesting with nearly a million people in the streets. Thank you to every single person that's here today in the biggest ever Political demonstration in the history of this country. This transformed his reputation and his standing. He became a person who called something right, and he keeps going back about how he called that right. And
1: and so riding high on, on on having called that right is is what sort of propelled him to
0: the Labour leadership. Well, that's one of two things that propelled him to the Labour leadership. The second thing was the two thousand eight financial crisis. Um, so the two thousand eight financial crisis um, blew up the idea that basically Blairite Cameronite economic policies had been fundamentally sensible. So a lot of young people were disillusioned with Blairism, disillusioned with Blairism because of the war primarily, but also because of the 2008 crisis. And so suddenly an eccentric figure become, and an aging figure becomes the rather glorious, saintly prophet of the future. He was elected in very odd circumstances. They have a two-stage process whereby the MPs choose a number of people who are then put to the membership. He was only put on the ballot to the membership in general by accident almost because um, a few moderate Labour MPs said, we ought to have somebody from the left. Let's put old Jeremy on. He'll go down to, to, to massive defeat. And instead of going down to defeat because of this mood in the party of anger with the elites and anger with Blairism, he stormed to victory. And he has won everyone over to his side on the matter of Brexit? Well, the one problem for him is that Brexit is a very difficult subject for the Labour Party as well as for the Conservative Party because Brexit is a subject that divides the parties down the middle. So what Corbyn has essentially done is to try to keep both sides together by being very ambiguous, um, saying he might be in favour of another vote, but he might not, saying he wants to leave but only if we can get a proper Labour Brexit and things like that. So constantly fudging, constantly being ambiguous. The point is that that's a very, very good position until you actually have to take decisions. And of course, as leader of the opposition, he hasn't had to take decisions. Um, now, um, because Theresa May has reached out to him and asked uh, him to help solve this Brexit problem, as she should have done. She should have done that two years ago, but now she's finally done it. He will have to make decisions. He will have to come off, off the fence. And that will, it won't quite split the party, I think, but it will annoy quite a lot of people within the party. And as for the negotiations themselves, how do you expect things might go? Well, I think the negotiations will go either moderately badly or very badly. Partly because this is an incredibly difficult issue. It's an intractable issue, as we know, but partly because of the personalities of these two people. In order for people to come together, they have to have a certain sympathy and they have to have a certain flexibility of judgment. They have no sympathy with each other. They come from completely different worlds. And secondly, they're people who are not given to compromise. In a sense, what you need is sort of flexible, glad-handing, emotionally warm politicians who can get into the room, have a few beers, have a few drinks, and agree to, to compromise over things. These are, these are rather rigid people who have nothing in common. A difficult formula.
1: And so therefore no guesses as to how the flavor of Brexit may change when they when they leave the the room.
0: Well I think the flavor of, of Brexit is already changing very dramatically. We're moving towards a much softer Brexit that will probably have some sort of customs union. They might be able to to hash that out because the the time is very short. They might be able to get over their personal differences. But even if they don't, it will go to the House of Commons. And the majority in the House of Commons are in favor of some sort of soft Brexit. So unless we crash out by accident, we're not going to have a hard Brexit. We're not going to crash out of the EU. We're going to leave a lot of people on the right of the Conservative Party extremely unhappy and a group of people on the leave side of the Labour Party. Extremely unhappy.
1: Adrian, thanks for your time. Thank you. This weekend marks 25 years since a horrifying frenzy of killing began in Rwanda. In the tiny, impoverished Central African country, there had been tensions for more than a century between a powerful minority called the Tutsis and a resentful majority, the Hutus. On April 6th, 1994, the country's Hutu president was killed when his plane was shot down. What had long been tense,
2: snapped. At dawn the very next day, the genocide began, and it began in an absolutely ferocious, systematic, concerted manner, starting in Kigali, which is the capital, but spreading very fast across the entire country, thus giving the impression that it was undoubtedly pre-planned. Zan Smiley is editor-at-large at The Economist. He's been reporting in Rwanda. It was actually carried out in the main by ordinary Hutus wielding clubs and machetes. Observers think that about three-quarters of all
1: Tutsis in Rwanda were killed.
3: Within those three months, there were so many horrible things happened. And people who were considered to be our friends. Uh, neighbors. Uh, they did the most horrible things.
1: Consulena Shimwe, now an author, was 14 years old at the time. She's Tutsi. She lost her father and several siblings in the slaughter. Last year, she spoke at a memorial held by the United Nations. She described fleeing with her family as the killing began.
3: We were in the bushes close to the river at that time, and we were hiding the the killers were carrying the machetes and clubs searching everywhere calling us cockroaches
1: her family got separated she was hiding in an attic when the killers came home in the evening
3: and it, it came outside and talking how many people they had murdered and they were warding themselves with beer and drinking
1: as she hid she overheard that they had killed her
3: father my dad who taught their kids my dad who was carrying every young person in our in our town. And now the reward is to kill him because, simply because he was a Tutsi.
1: Console's story is just one of hundreds of thousands. Zan, the events in Rwanda are certainly seen as a genocide, right?
2: I think it is unquestioned to be a genocide if you take the UN definition, which is an intention to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group And so how did the genocide end? So the main opposition to the Hutu extremists uh, was a rebel army led by Paul Kagame. As the genocide got into full swing in its horrendous way, uh, the opposition army began to move south and eventually they conquered Rwanda. And after three months of genocide, uh, they stopped it quite simply by taking over the country. Paul Kagame, who didn't become technically president till 2000, but he was always the power behind the throne. He and his new regime, led by Tutsis, began to rebuild the country, and they've been rebuilding it ever since. But but how to rebuild?
1: How does a country get over an atrocity on that scale?
2: Well, I think there are two main prongs. The first one was that they imposed a retribution, a justice system by incarcerating the worst of what they call the génocidaires, And at one end of the scale, um, after a year or so, an international tribunal was set up with UN support. It was a very unsatisfactory and slow-moving process. So from 2002, the new government under Paul Kagame set up a great big web of very traditional courts known as gachacha. And these courts took place under trees and in courtyards and so forth and consisted of a somewhat rough and ready form of justice. But I think most people I talked to would reckon that it did the job in that a good million cases were settled in this court and many people were sentenced to sometimes hard labor or labor, And some were, many thousands were sent to prison. And thereafter, quite simply, the two communities have had to rub along as best they can together. You've
1: been back to Rwanda recently. Have you spoken to people involved in that process? Do you you get to the sense that people feel some closure?
2: I'm not sure one can actually use the word closure. But I think it's generally accepted that they have now got to sort of get on with living together and there is a sort of basic contract which Paul Kagame, the president, has effected and that is that although Rwanda is a very, very tightly controlled, politically quite repressive state, there has been a huge concentration on social and economic development. So there are a lot of quite impressive figures even if you, um, if, if you take them a little bit cautiously. I think the, the upshot is that Rwanda has undoubtedly grown very fast and the hope is that ethnic differences have been softened because both sides, everybody, has clearly improved in terms of uh, prosperity.
1: And, and so, in a sense, th- these two ethnic groups then are, are at peace, uh, have, have made a peace with each other and, and now live side by side with, with, with some level of, of
2: comfort with it all? I think it's an exaggeration uh, to say a, a, a level of comfort. One simply cannot tell and both Rwandans and foreigners who've lived there for a long time, they will all warn you against taking literally – what the official line is, which is that we have all more or less um, ridden over the old ethnic tensions and uh, we all now consider ourselves Rwandans and not Hutus or Tutsis. It's very, very hard to believe that. But at the same time, one has to admit that as um, one of the experts I talked to, Uh, described it, quote, no other country today has so many perpetrators of mass atrocities living in such close proximity to their victims' families. And so it is somehow remarkable that the two groups do live cheek by jowl. At the same time, it is completely unacceptable, either for a foreigner or in public discourse for Rwandans, even to use the labels Hutu or Tutsi, And you really have to sort of get into a slightly more kind of intimate situation where after a few beers, I found it was possible to talk frankly about Hutus and Tutsis. But on paper, the claim is that they no longer see themselves as such. I find that uh, virtually impossible to believe. Zen, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you very much.
1: As regular listeners will have gathered, I can be quite partial to a cocktail. But the show's producers occasionally worry about my health.
4: Come on, Jason. How many segments about alcohol have we done since we launched?
1: Hannah Coombs, one of our producers, has challenged me to make something a little bit kinder on the liver. Coming up, a certain brand of distilled non-alcoholic spirit and soda over
2: ice. Cheers.
4: Cheers. quite refreshing.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's herbal. It's not a strong flavour, that's for sure.
4: You're missing something, aren't you?
1: I hate to admit it so early in the process, but yeah. <laughs> for those who don't see the appeal in these kinds of non-alcoholic drinks, British scientist David Nutt may have an answer. He's the director of the Neuropsychopharmacology Unit at Imperial College London and a former drugs advisor to the British government. Recently, he told me about a synthetic alcohol replacement molecule he says he's developing. It's called Alcosynth.
5: Alcosynth is an alternative to alcohol. It's a compound which has been designed to replicate or mimic the good effects of alcohol, the desirable effects, but to significantly reduce the negative effects. Alcohol is the most popular drug, certainly in most Western countries, but the enjoyment of alcohol comes at a price. And the price is liver disease, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, brain disease, stomach ulcers, etc. Alcohol is the most harmful drug in all Western countries where it's widely used. And that's attention. And if we can reduce the harms of an alternative drink, then I think most people would prefer that.
1: It sounds, frankly, too good to be true. How How does that work on a sort of molecular level?
5: It works by targeting the particular subtypes of neurotransmitter receptors that give us the good effects of alcohol, but eliminating the
1: many other receptor interactions that alcohol produces. And you reckon the stimulating of the less desirable ones essentially leads to negative health effects? Yes,
5: there are two aspects to this. The first is that alcohol has effects on receptor systems in the brain which can cause serious problems like, for instance, death. And our won't do that. But the other issue with alcohol is that it has to be metabolized to a substance called acetaldehyde. And acetaldehyde is an intrinsic toxin. So finding substances which are not metabolized to acetaldehyde means that you eliminate one of the major causes of harm from
1: alcohol. And so you are presently in the business of trying to get this stuff to market. I mean, you're fundraising at the moment? That's correct. We have raised our corn funding, and now we're putting
5: together a prospectus, which should go out in the next month or so, where we're going to get the first tranche of investors. What about licensing, regulations and so on? Won't you face an uphill battle? We'll face the regulatory system. We're absolutely prepared for that. That's why we need most of the funding. The way it goes is this will be sold as a drinks additive. It'll go through the food standards testing procedures, which
1: are quite rigorous. It's a four to five year process
5: of taking a new foodstuff to the market.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, you co-own a a wine bar yourself. Are are you imagining that in the future it will be an AlcoSynth bar? The plan is to have both. The plan is to give people an alternative. And at present, there is no alternatives. (laughs) There is a third alternative in which you don't have anything alcohol related at all. Most
5: people don't want that. In the UK, (laughs) 85% of the population drink alcohol. The whole point of alcohol is to give people what they want, but give them a choice and give them something considerably less harmful.
4: We know alcohol is bad for us. The evidence seems to accumulate every day.
1: That's Natasha Loader, The Economist's health policy editor.
4: A paper in The Lancet has just reported that even low consumption isn't going to give us any protection against stroke, as some people had hoped, but actually increase the risk of stroke. So aesthetic alcohol alternative, one that does less physical harm to the body, is a really appealing idea. As for whether it's the future of drinking, though, I think the proof of the pudding will be very much in the eating or drinking, as it were. We just simply don't know whether people are going to find it appealing enough to want to consume it regularly instead of alcohol. And we also need to know if it's safe, right?
1: Do, do you have concerns that these kinds of things might not be?
4: With any kind of synthetic food stuff, you do have to wonder what they're made of and what the impact will be on the body. We've had artificial calorie sweeteners where people have wondered whether people actually are putting more weight on. We've had a synthetic fat substitute, Alestra, that turned out to sort of inhibit the absorption of some vitamins and also had some embarrassing side effects in the bathroom. And so if you're going to drink a lot of something that's synthetic, you do have to wonder what impact it's going to have. It may be that alcohol is just so bad for you that replacing it with something that's synthetic is just better. That's a bit like the e-cigarette argument.
1: You mentioned e-cigarettes. Are there any kind of lessons to be taken from how that has played out, how that's now a widespread market?
4: Yeah, the lesson is do take seriously the sort of effect that the product has on non-target groups of users. It may be that you start out producing synthetic alcohol thinking this is going to be really great for people who drink a lot of alcohol. But in actual fact, your market ends up being an entirely different set of people, say young people. And that has negative public health impacts that you just didn't predict.
1: I mean, at the end of the day, this is just a startup and a bright idea and someone who's looking for funding. But at the same time, this is coming from the very established figure who has been fighting against the ills of alcohol for years.
4: Yeah, I think if this idea had come from anyone other than David Nutt, we wouldn't be here talking about it. But, you know, his background in science and in public health makes it a very intriguing proposal.
1: Thanks for your time, Natasha.
4: Thank you so much, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com/slash radio offer. Twelve issues for twelve dollars or twelve pounds. See you back here tomorrow. Even when we're on
3: a budget, we still deserve nice things.